two things happened in my life. I experienced the death of a family member for the first time. Um, my granddad died at the age of 53. Now, I really don't remember an awful lot from my childhood, childhood at all, but I do remember, strangely, this one episode being carried away from his graveside in my dad's arms and asking the question, why did granddad have to die? And behind that little question lay a wish, really, that death was not so final. Surrounded by my grieving relatives, I knew exactly what it was like. And then, strangely, it was around about the same time that I was first introduced to the idea of resurrection. Now, this sounds a bit absurd at first, but bear with me. Uh, through the movie E.T., right? I know that is an unusual pairing to put together two great things that impact my life, a family member's death and E.T. Okay, bear with me. But I remember watching through floods of tears a pasty white and thoroughly dead extraterrestrial and watching him come alive again in that movie, feeling so unbelievably happy, and at the same time wishing that that could have happened to my granddad. And behind that little longingly, a childish hope that death could be reversed, that life just could go on. And I think on a day like this, when we reflect on resurrection, and as we think about what death means, I think those wishes, those longings never really leave us, no matter what age we are. We've stood at too many gravesides, we've felt lost day after day, there are loved ones who've gone who don't come back. And at the same time, we continue watching movies like E.T. We watch Beauty and the Beast and a million others, you know, mess with the cultural psyche, instilling some kind of hope that ultimately is disappointing. You know, death reversed by another's love. Man alive, get me some popcorn and some tissues. You know, that, that's what hope is given to our culture. And yet we're disappointed because we say resurrection doesn't happen. Well, today is Easter Sunday, the day when Christians sing for joy at the fact that death is not final and the hope of resurrection, in fact, is not disappointing. For Jesus died and rose again, and that is exactly what we celebrate on a day like this. The grave could not hold him. Death could not keep him from rising again. And the great truth that's taught us in this word is that his resurrection was not going to be the only resurrection, but the first resurrection that in fact guarantees ours. And to his grieving friends in John 11, we remember Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And he asked them, do you believe this? And I wonder if you're here today, if I can ask everyone, actually, do you? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that through faith in him, life is not empty, death is not the end, there is a great hope and a great future to come? Well, what do you think about it? What do you think about the Christian claim that Jesus rose from the dead? You might think the same as my barber. I was getting my hair cut on Friday, and Marie, who cuts my hair, she knows I'm a minister, and she says, oh, Easter must be a busy time for you. What are you up to? And I say, well, I'm writing a sermon about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and about one of the fact that his followers doubted. 
And she said, oh, I know how that feels. And she said, she said, it's hard to believe that someone rose from the dead. And then she paused, and you could see she was thinking. And then she just said, but you really want it to be true, don't you? And I said, yeah, you really do. So where should those who are skeptical, but maybe who want it to be true, go? Where should a skeptic go to consider whether or not this Christian claim is true? Where are the answers? Where do we find assurance that what many consider a fairy tale hope is actually a true story? We go to God's word. And I think the answer might surprise us. Let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 20. We're going to read from verse 19 to give us a little bit of context, but we're dealing with verses 24 to 31. So John chapter 20. So Martin read to us at the start of our service from the beginning of the passage, the beginning of this chapter, which accounts for the resurrection appearance of Jesus to Mary at the tomb. And we read from verse 19. That on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Amen. This is God's word. So let's look at this passage of 24 to 31 just in two Two main chunks to help us out. First of all, the mindset of a skeptic as we look at verses uh, 24 and 25. So what does someone say when they are skeptical of the Christian claim that Jesus Christ, who once was dead, is now alive again? What would someone say? Well, I think the mindset of a skeptic is revealed in what Thomas says. He says they would say two things. I will not believe the witnesses, and I will lay down conditions to be met. Okay, I will not believe the witnesses. Look with me, verse 25 again. The other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. 
Thomas missed the appearing of Jesus to the disciples a week earlier. At that time, they saw Jesus and were commissioned, really, as his apostles, the sent ones, entrusted with the gospel of Christ and set up, really, as the foundation of the church. And on that day, Jesus had shown them his wounds. He was proving to them that he really had died. He had given them a taste of the spirit that they'd receive after his ascension at Pentecost. And he was giving them this job to do. As the Father has sent me, he said, so I am sending you. And he was giving them every possible kind of proof that he really had died and he really had risen from the dead. And he was doing this in order to set before everyone for all time these particular men as eyewitnesses. Uh, they're a foundation in a building, if you like. And the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us of other appearances where over a period of 40 days, um, they heard him teach, they touched his resurrected body, uh, they watched him physically eat broiled fish. It sounds a bit disgusting. I mean, why would you ever eat broiled fish unless you were trying to prove that you were actually risen from the dead? I don't know. But the detail in the, the, the Gospels is absolutely phenomenal. And if, if you don't think it's phenomenal, I'm pretty confident you actually haven't read it properly. It is incredible. Now, what is the result of the consideration of all the evidence of these, these apostles? They were overjoyed. These people who were cowering behind locked doors, barred doors, for fear that the same punishment that was enacted on Jesus Christ would be enacted on them, his closest followers, they were full of fear. They were not really sitting there saying, oh, on Saturday, I cannot wait for tomorrow. No, they were petrified. They, were, they had the mindset that this Messiah who had come was going to be triumphant and victorious. They were left in confusion. How can a Messiah be dead? Of course, they had in view the notion of a resurrection. But yes, the resurrection at the end of the age, of the judgment to eternal life or to eternal death. But then the resurrection just plows into them on this the third day. As Mary comes declaring, I've seen the Lord. They're like, what? They run after. They go and see the tomb for themselves. They see the linen lying there. They hear the testimony of Mary. They hear the testimony of the, 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 the folks on the Emmaus Road, Cleopas and his partner, who came back and said, it's true. He really is alive. They were absolutely overjoyed at this. Their despair is gone. And their delight would last forever in their legacy as apostles. But Thomas wasn't there. He missed it. You can speculate for forever, really, on why he wasn't there, and I'm sure there's a sermon in there on why you shouldn't miss church, but that's not really the main point. But with that same joy, they were really, they were really eagerly trying to get Thomas to believe. I mean, the grammar in the background of verse 25 is written in a present continuous sense, so they, they didn't just tell Thomas that they had seen the Lord. They kept on telling him, but he kept on rejecting their testimony. He was skeptical. He doubted. Now, some like to speculate on why Thomas wasn't there, but I think it's better to wonder why Jesus appeared when he knew Thomas wouldn't be there. Have you thought of that? 
He knows all things, right? Isn't it, in a sense, to give people who doubt someone to identify with? I mean, don't you see, for a whole week, Thomas relates to the apostles the way that every single person throughout the ages who would not have the privilege of seeing and touching the risen Jesus face to face, he interacted for a whole week the way we interact with, this, with these eyewitnesses that we read about in here. And as we hear their eyewitness testimony, what do we do with it? Do we take them at their word? Do we doubt it? And what about the reason for the doubt? We're not really told why he didn't accept it. Maybe it's down to the fact that his hopes have been dashed. Maybe the pain of disappointment, doubt for all of us. I mean, it comes in so many different forms, it's hard to say. I wonder what the the reason for your skepticism was before you became a Christian. Or if you're not a Christian today, what's the reason for your doubt? Maybe it's down to a lack of knowledge. That's a simple one in a sense. You just don't know enough to make an informed decision and Dispelling that doubt really just means studying it and getting someone to help explain it to you. But maybe your doubt is down to disappointment. You've been rocked with uncertainty over something that you thought was true in the past. Maybe it's just down to, maybe your doubt is fundamentally a matter of the will. It's down to something that you desire. You don't like the implications of believing or the implications that believing would have on your life, therefore you resist discovering more. You're happy in your skepticism. We peer into the skeptic's mind in Thomas. We hear him say, I will not believe it. That's his resolve. But he also says what needs to happen in order for him to believe it. So he lays down conditions to be met. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. If I'm going to believe that Jesus is alive, I'm going to have to see what you've seen. I'm going to have to touch what you have touched. And I wonder if that describes the view of the people that we know who are not Christians. People who not only are happy in their skepticism, but really who are laying down conditions to be met. Unless this happens, I will not believe. Unless God gives me some explanation for the past suffering that I've experienced in my life, I will not believe. Unless I receive an answer for why bad things happen to good people, I will not believe. I want us to see this morning that if we lay down similar conditions to Thomas for faith in Christ, we're going to be disappointed. Especially if we say, and I've heard it said, unless someone comes back from the dead and shows us really what's beyond the grave, I will not believe it. Well, we're going to be disappointed in that. In fact, I say, if you do see the risen Jesus appearing, you've left it way too late, for that would be the time of his return and the time of what he promises, the judgment. But no, he doesn't appear to us in the flesh the way he appeared particularly to these men. You might say, well, that is not fair. Why does he appear to Thomas and these guys and give them the royal treatment? Why present his wounds to them? Why not to more people? Well, it's to show us that Thomas was not just a great doubter. It's to show us that Thomas is a great apostle. That he is among the company of the apostles who would be the sent ones 
the foundation of the church on which this Christian faith is built on their eyewitness testimony. Because to be an apostle, you see, you, there were necessary credentials. You, to be an apostle, you had to have heard something. You'd had to be verbally instructed by Jesus personally. And you had to have seen something. You had to have visual confirmation of the resurrection. You had to have clapped eyes on him. And that's the treatment that Thomas got because he was part of the twelve. And the reason he got that was not just for his benefit, friends, but for ours. So that as we listen to the reports of these eyewitnesses in this book, we might not think, oh, I'm not really sure about that. But we can look and read with confidence and say, on this, on this testimony, I'm going to bank my life. I'm going to put my trust in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to move from unbelief to belief, from doubt to faith. And that's what we see happen next in verses 26 to 28 in the conversion of the skeptic. A week later, the disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, the Greek word means barred. Okay, they're scared. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my sides. What does Jesus say to this doubter? Two things. He says, look at my wounds and stop doubting and believe. He says, look at my wounds. I think, he's, I think this is what blew Thomas away. There was something about Christ's hands and side that depicted both immense suffering and unspeakable healing all at the same time. These wounds were not still sore. I poked a bit of glass into my finger yesterday. I'm not looking for sympathy. It's an illustration. And, and it was sore. Okay, maybe a little bit of sympathy. But, and it's still sore today, okay? But not so with the wounds of Christ. In his glorified state, it is his body, but it is so transformed that all is new. Never to die again, never to perish, never to decay, never, never to go black and fall into dust. Transformed, glorified, made to live forever in the new heaven and new earth, just as we who believe one day will be. And those wounds are present. They're visible, but they're not sore. In Revelation, all of heaven looks on those wounds and bursts out into praise. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, they say, because those wounds are the indicator of one who once was marred for our sake, but now who has defeated those who inflicted the wounds. In, he defeated death itself. I think Thomas saw what we sing about in Crown Him With Many Crowns. Crown Him With Many Crowns, behold his hands and sight. Those wounds yet visible above in beauty, 
glorified. All hail, Redeemer, hail, for thou hast died for me, and praise him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Friends, if you have any doubt, and you want to know what Jesus would say to you as a skeptic, I would say look at his wounds. Get someone to walk through with you the passages in the Bible that talk about his crucifixion and his death to lay up for you everything that comes before it, the meaning that he apportioned to that death by the explanation that he gave and be under no illusion as to what is happening when the darkness fell, when the scriptures were being fulfilled, when he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when he cried out, it is finished. Get someone to explain that to you. Life and death, hang on that. Look at his wounds and see his love for you. I think this is the sight that so often breaks through a skeptic's ambivalence towards God. He really died for you to demonstrate his love for the world. It's incredible. He is a glorious Savior. And not only does he say, look to my wounds, he says, stop doubting and believe. It's a funny thing, isn't it? The, one of the main points of this passage is that you, in the 21st century here in Edinburgh, you don't need to see the wounds. You don't need to touch the wounds in order to believe. And Jesus actually rebukes Thomas back then and saying, actually, you don't really need to see this. It's almost what they call in communication a double bind. Have you heard about this? It's kind of when you say something to someone and then you behave in a way that's different. Uh, I think it's most often seen in marriage, actually, where you say, okay, the boys are going out tonight. Would it be all right if I go and join them and go and watch the Champions League zone? And, you know, your spouse says, yeah, sure, okay. And you're like, well, are you sure? Yeah. And, and then, you know, it turns out that you go and they're like, why did you go? You knew I was upset about going, you know? Oh, but if you stayed, and they, they would say, well, I didn't say didn't, not to go, you know? And that's a double bind. It's like bad communication. But Jesus kind of does that with Thomas. He says, I'm going to show you these things, but actually you don't really you need to stop doubting and believe. Believe what? The witnesses. Believe what these eyewitnesses have been saying for a whole week. What grounds have you got for disbelieving their testimony? You've seen the transformation that's taken place in them. Why discredit those that you have journeyed with? They were miserable and now they're saying, we have seen the Lord. I think this is a kind of transformation that helped convince C.S. Lewis, who was once totally skeptical of the resurrection, to be convinced, in fact, that it was true. It's the same for many people who've looked into the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Tim Keller, in his excellent book, Reason for God, has a chapter on the resurrection. It's worth reading that if you want to explore this further. Uh, he talks about the way in which this resurrection impacted Christians in those early decades of the church. And he says, historians throughout the decades have been utterly astounded at the spread of the Christian faith and its message since its humble beginnings in the first century. How could something that started with such a ragtag group of people with no money and no education spread like wildfire, he asks. 
How did this faith and this message survive at a time when there were already many healthy faiths and ideologies around at the time? Impressive academic philosophies, not to mention established religious faiths of the day. How on earth did Christianity not only compete with these, historically speaking, sweep them aside? He quotes the late uh, scholar, uh, Yale scholar, Kenneth Scott Latourette, who had studied this himself, though not a believer, and given three main reasons for this. He says, well, Christians seem to care for one another better than anyone else. And secondly, they were much more inclusive. Christianity took royalty and slaves and put them together side by side as brothers and sisters. People were segregated back then. There were the Romans, and then there were the Jews, and then there were the Greeks, and so on. But in Christianity, Latourit was saying, actually, they all mixed. They were all one. Social class was not an issue. And the third thing he said was that Christians died well, even when death was brutal. There are innumerable accounts of Christians singing songs in the lion's den. He said, nobody ever died like that. What with that kind of peace? Now, he asked the question, Latourette asked the question, why? He said, it's clear that at the very beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy, virtually unequaled in history. Without it, the future course of that religion is inexplicable. And listen to this. He says, why this occurred may lie outside the realm in which modern historians are supposed to move. You don't say. That is just a fancy way of saying he has risen from the dead. And it's true. So skeptics, doubters, lay those things aside. Look to his wounds in beauty glorified. And stop doubting the testimony of the witnesses. And believe, believe the gospel that they proclaim. Believe the news that these people share with us. That we in ourselves are by nature objects of wrath, dead in our sins. We are like a walking, talking zombie movie that looks like there are signs of life, but we're dead inside. And Jesus comes into this world declaring that we should repent of our sins for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, his kingdom. And repent, when he commands us to repent, it tells us that we've got something to turn away from and the Bible tells us exactly what that is. It's sin. It's rebellion against God's authority. It's a defiance of his word. It's discrediting him by ruling life, our own lives the way we want to with no deference to him, never mind faith. And as we turn from him, we turn in faith to believe. Believe what? That Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost. Those who were lost because of their sin. And that in him and through his sacrifice on the cross, we might have life in his name. That's why John is writing this. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. Not zombies anymore, but finally alive. Alive now through the new life that Christ gives us through faith and alive forever with him in the new heaven and new earth when he returns to take us home. He calls on us, his witnesses call on us to repent and be baptized. Turn away from sin. Put our trust in God. 
and do the first thing that demonstrates that we really have turned to him. Show the world what we think now. And maybe you too will like Thomas declare, my Lord and my God. That is an incredible profession of faith. If you read the entire Gospel of John, you'll see this is a, that the Lordship of Jesus Christ and his deity is exactly what he's been trying to communicate. He's no moral teacher. He is God. I mean, if you look in John 8, Jesus says that he is without sin. I mean, who among us can make that claim? In John 8, 19, he says, if you know me, you know the Father. In John 12, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You're looking at deity. I mean, if I said that to you, what would you think? You'd think I was crazy. But Jesus demonstrated all the hallmarks of deity and proved it by his signs and wonders that reinforced the claims of his mouth. And when he stands before Thomas, presenting him with his wounds and with a mild rebuke, stop doubting and believe the witnesses. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Now, that's what it means to be a Christian. And you're not really a Christian until you declare that. Because on the one hand, this is a propositional statement. There's content to this faith. It's, he is Lord and he is God, Lord of the universe and deity himself. But on the other hand, it's intensely personal. It's my Lord. It was for my sin. And he is my God, the one who I will live for forever. And Jesus responds to this profession of Thomas is saying, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Have you ever seen those kind of movies where you've got a character who does a little bit more, he interacts with the camera itself? Have you seen that kind of thing? This is like what Jesus does here. He's speaking to Thomas. Because you have seen me, you have believed. And I like to think he's, you know, it's kind of like a glance at the camera. But blessed are those who have not seen you. Everyone else who will not see him physically in front of them, but have believed the testimony of the witnesses, blessed are you. How happy and overjoyed you can be on Easter day because you have put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not a futile faith, brothers and sisters. Their testimony is true. So in closing, what should we do to respond well, do what Jesus says. Stop doubting and believe. Let's not doubt the testimony of these witnesses. We can keep doubting and don't believe. That's the other thing that we could do, I suppose. But realize this. If we choose to doubt or discredit the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we have to come up with some other explanation for the global movement of Christianity and for the impact that it had in history on the men who received this message. And it's true, most people think that when it comes to Jesus' resurrection, the burden of proof is on Christians like us to give evidence that it happened. But actually, the resurrection puts the burden of proof on skeptics as well. Tell me convincingly why it definitely didn't happen. You might say, well, it's impossible that someone can rise from the dead. Well, that's, that's a very bold statement, actually. I mean, to say that scientifically, you would have to have stood with your clipboard and monitored every single death on every square inch of this world, through every moment of time that has passed, to say that it's utterly impossible. 
Now, I get you could go and sit in any one of the cemeteries around here for a month and sit with your clipboard and watch and recognize, okay, it's, it's improbable that people in Edinburgh are going to be raised from the dead. Okay? I give you that. But you cannot say it's impossible. And the Bible actually teaches you that it's possible and that one man, the God-man in particular, Jesus Christ, rose and has promised that one day all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. They will rise to judgment, some to eternal life in heaven with him, some to eternal death in hell apart from him. The single determining factor in whether or not it will be heaven or hell for any of us listening to this today is whether or not you stand before Jesus and declare, my Lord and my God. Stop doubting, friends, and believe. Doubt your doubts. Question your questions. And don't let them slip away. Dignify them. Please do. If you've never read John's gospel, and you would actually like to read the rest of it, because we've kind of read the end of it. We've given, us, we've given it away. But if you would like to read the rest of it today, there are the copies of these John's gospel. They look like little moleskin notebooks. And there's some available on the information point there. And some folks will maybe hand them out to you at the back at the door. Someone's waving one to me there. That's great. So grab one of those and read through John's gospel for yourself. Maybe you'd like a little bit of help explaining it. Well, we have got John's gospel in a little booklet, which is in a booklet that's designed to be read in pairs. So if you would like someone to actually read it with you and explain it as we go along, then we would love to organize that for you. Just speak to one of the stewards. Uh, pop a note at the information point to the person who's manning it, and we'd be delighted to chat to you about this and organize for someone to read through it with you. Consider these things and realize that even what we read in there doesn't contain the half of it. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Believe in him. Have life in his name. Praise God for the great truths of the resurrection from the eyewitnesses that help us today say with certainty and assurance, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray.